0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to
1: the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 3rd, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein.
0: Hey, Steve. uh, Julia left her sparklers over here at the house.
1: You're trying uh, to bait me, Evan? Yes! Come on! Do <laughs> you like some- Mrs. Poggle? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't understand what's happening right now. That,
1: I say that to my daughter every time <laughs> there is anything sparkly or flashy or anything. It's a quote from The Simpsons. And nope. I just do it to annoy her because <laughs> <But> she <laughs>, laughs. She thinks it's funny. She thinks it's funny, but she also like pretends to be annoyed by it. <laughs> She's
3: <laughs> not. Pretending. She's not pretending. <laughs> oh. I, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you. Come this. on. I absolutely love it when that comes up.
2: Hey, happy birthday, Carl Zimmer, born July 13th, 1966, and Erno Rubik, born July 13th, 1944. Hey, I, I know, know who that
0: guy is. I know. I met one of them.
2: Which one? Rubik guy. Carl Zimmer. Sure, our audience knows he's been on the show. Yep. He's an awesome science writer, and Erno Rubik invented the Rubik's Cube, amongst other things. He's uh, an architect and an inventor, and just kind of an awesome guy. He's an introvert, apparently. Uh, I was reading on his Wikipedia page. Said he does not go to World Record or whatever tournament time trials for Rubik's Cube. <laughs> Yeah, apparently he's very difficult to uh, get a hold of. So if you have a Rubik's cube with his autograph, apparently it's worth quite a bit of money mm-hmm. to you know other nerds,
1: right? <laughs> in the nerdosphere, <laughs> yeah. There's another birthday in the first half of July that we didn't mention. Who's that? Bob Novella turns Ooh. fifty this year. The big oh. Whoa. And who else? Oh, and, okay. his, and his twin, our other brother, Joe.
4: His, uh dies, I got a twin.
1: I thought
2: all of you were born around now.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. So Bob's July 4th, I'm July 29th, Jay is August 11th. So we're all summer babies.
3: Well, happy birthday, Bob. Happy thank, birthday, Bob. Thank you. Uh, so Bob, by the way, how old are you? Uh, right now, 49?
4: 49. 49.999? Pretty much, <laughs> yeah, around there.
3: <laughs> You got a, you got a problem with that? <laughs> Not at all. I got mine. You know, I'm gonna be 50 someday too. If you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs>
1: hey, so the SGU has finally gotten some really good sponsors. We're excited about this because this is going to enable us to do a lot more skeptical
3: outreach and activism. So Jay, tell us who our first sponsor is. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus. With Hulu Plus, you get total control to watch thousands of shows wherever you want, whenever you want. Binge on full seasons and watch your favorite current shows like Community, South Park, SNL, Star Trek. There's a ton of shows in there for you guys. Right now, our listeners can get an extended free trial of Hulu Plus by going to huluplus.com forward slash SGU. Or just go to our homepage and we're going to put a link up for you guys to make it really easy.
1: All right, great. Thanks, Jay.
3: First, we're gonna, Bob, you're going to tell
1: us how you can see through walls. Yet one other way that we can use amazing magical technology to see through walls.
4: Yes, but it's uh, not magic. It's science. Windows. <laughs> <laughs> okay. MIT scientists are uh, working on a device that could be available to anyone that will allow us to see people through walls. Or as all the news sites uh, seem to love to say, they will give us x-ray vision like Superman. The kicker is that it will work not with, not with x-rays or anything more exotic than relatively lowly Wi-Fi signals. This is headed by MIT professor Dina Katabi and her grad student, Fidel Adib, and they wanted to create a device to fulfill three requirements. It had to be low power, portable, and simple enough for anybody to use. The military has been working on devices like this. I think I actually talked about that like a year ago or so. And their progress actually looks pretty promising, but it relies on big, heavy radar technology and apparently it uses part of the EM spectrum that's only available to them. What? Yeah. That doesn't I, seem fair. Yeah, right. It's not fair it's that there's secret part of the spectrum that, that's can't just there. You can't bogart parts <laughs> of the EM spectrum. Now, uh, the new technology uses, as I said, very low power Wi-Fi technology. And it could be small enough to be handheld, which is one of the key things about this. Uh, I believe the military's version, if I remember, uh, needs to be mounted on a truck. Uh, so this is definitely big and bulky stuff, and I'm sure that they'll, you know, the military's version will probably be will probably be more sensitive and have lots of advantages. But the idea that this is something that you could actually hold in your hand and anybody can buy it is, is fairly compelling. Now, the problem with this kind of tech, though, is that the Wi-Fi signal pretty much bounces off of everything. You know, the tiny amount of energy that actually makes it through the wall, I think it's like a a percent, actually makes it through the wall and then reflects off the people and then makes it back through the wall again and back to the receiver. you can imagine that's a pretty tiny signal. And that small signal is swamped by all the reflections that are bouncing off of everything else that's in the, the environment, including, of course, the wall itself. So they got around this in a really clever way, I think. They send out two almost identical signals. One, though, is the inverse of the other, so that any signal that b- that bounces off a non-moving object, the wall, cancels
0: say,
4: it out. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's pretty much unchanged, and it's it's then you know the the waves interfere, they cancel each other out, and so it, and so it's um it's canceled out by this inverse signal. But if it bounces off of a moving object though, say a person walking in the other room on the other side of the wall, the frequency has changed a bit and so that the inverse signal has no effect on it. So the only signal then that actually makes it back to the receiver are signals that reflect off of moving objects. So I thought thought that was a really elegant solution. Uh, So even if you're just moving your arms, it, it it could be theoretically sensed by this device. Now one drawback that I see though is that if you don't want to be discovered, what do you do? Just don't move. Right, I mean, just just be really still if you want to be all sneaky and, and surprise somebody. Like it with is... a T. Rex. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Oh yeah, cause it, yeah, <laughs> oh, of course. Um, Which is not actually true, listeners.
3: Is this thing being mass produced or is it in the lab?
4: No, no, it's still it's still in the lab, and uh, they're not at the point where they're they're mass producing it. But the thing though about the sensitivity is that um you know perhaps it can be sensitive enough that um it could detect movement of say your body when you're breathing. I mean that's that's a possibility. I, I do remember that when I was doing research for the military version a while ago, that that they think theirs can be as se- sensitive enough to detect somebody breathing. Um, still though, there there could be lots of benefits from this, and some of you might not have imagined. Uh, search and search and rescue is one option that that leaps to mind. You know, mm-hmm. if you're trying to find survivors after an earthquake, uh, it could be helpful. Uh, unless of course if they're unconscious and, and moving, that could be a problem. Also, law enforcement, this can come very handy for them if they need to see. Uh, or identify the, the location and movement of criminals in, in a building, for example, or say, uh, you know, t- t- try to see if anyone's going to ambush them. They, it could be helpful. And also, since small movements like arm waving can be picked up, uh, it actually can be used for gesture c- control, for control devices in your, in your house or at work. And here's another one that was interesting. This angle was something I didn't expect. Gaming could also be impacted. Now, you guys all know about Kinect, but Kinect is pretty awesome, but it requires you to be right in front of the camera. So what if you can control the game from another part of your house uh, who knows uh, you know what what could come of that so um I'll be- well you can
2: still take that Wii controller thing that Wii U controller to the toilet
4: so oh, are they still making that thing? No, yeah, so the, the if you combine
2: one. those two things, like what's on your TV onto your smartphone and then you could use the gesture-based thing, you know, that could work. Okay. But you know, Bob, I really enjoyed the chipper way in which you've delivered this news item mm-hmm. and also the way in which you've described several problems with the technology, uh, but have not actually mentioned the truly horrific breach of privacy problem. <laughs> like bah. I I find the idea of a handheld see-through-walls device that's available to literally everyone to be horrifying. (laughs) Even, like, handheld device just available to the police. Horrifying! (laughs) Like, (laughs) I kind of want this entire thing to fail, Um, but... I take comfort in the fact that as soon as this is released, someone else will release a jamming device right. that is also freely available and, you know, that you can download off the internet and print with your 3D printer if it's still legal.
4: So. Well, I, I understand your concern, Rebecca, but I don't think it would ever have the resolution where you'd have to be worried about walking around naked in, in your house. Um, but yeah, it would be, it would be a little disconcerting to know that somebody could see exactly what your body is doing in in the privacy of your own home, but uh, yeah, but I'm like, not even the nudity thing. But like, it, you
3: know, it, I could see uses for firemen and police if it, if it was used appropriately, it could be very effective. It won't be. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm,
2: I'm very um, pessimistic about the police right now. And so I'm feeling like I don't want the police to have this either. I feel like the world will be a worse place. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, you're paranoid. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, it is true, though, that that just overall we're living in an increasingly recorded, monitored, surveillance society. There's just one more little piece to that puzzle. Mm -hmm. It's going to be increasingly difficult to maintain any sort of privacy.
2: Yeah, and I wouldn't call this a little piece. I would call this a big piece, the ability for –
3: Yeah, maybe they'd need to be licensed or – you know, some type of regulation, so it's limited.
2: For those of you who aren't terrified of the police being able to see where you are in your home at all times, imagine a criminal being able to see ah. if you're asleep in the back bedroom before he breaks down the door or something, or if you're alone, if you're a single woman living in an apartment and there's nobody else in there, no dog or anything like that, you know, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, good point.
2: Mm.
1: Evan, I didn't know this, but the Wright brothers were frauds. <laughs> they weren't the first in flight. Come on, straighten us out now. Maybe. Does that make any
2: frauds? I don't know about that.
1: Oh, they're yeah. trying to steal the credit from Connecticut, our home state. I, I don't know think
2: they're trying to do anything. They are pretty dead.
1: Yeah, well, Steve, you have you have home state loyalty a little bit. I'm a Connecticutian at heart. <laughs> a con- As a am what? I. As a
0: Connecticut is my country. Come on, Connecticut. That sounds
2: that sounds like a Death penalty, not
4: not
0: (laughs) jingoism. Little kids from here are called kineticules. So (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Uh, this news item takes us back to actually March of this year when NPR ran a story about the controversy surrounding the world's first powered, controlled and manned flight in an airplane. Orville and Wilbur Wright, their names are synonymous with the first flight. And for as long as I can remember, and I'm sure all of you We were taught that the Wright brothers achieved the first successful documented flight in the history of the world some 110 years ago in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. So what if we had evidence, real evidence, that the Wright brothers were not the first in flight? Think of that. Well, say hello to Mr. Gustav Whitehead of Bridgeport, Connecticut. There are accounts and reports and supposedly photographic evidence of Mr. Whitehead having accomplished a powered and controlled flight while in the plane, in an aircraft of his own design in 1901. This is two full years before the Wright brothers' famous Kitty Hawk flight. The plane was dubbed number 21. So now we have to take a quick jump from March's NPR report to this past June and a Scientific American report, and their article is titled this. Recent bill in Connecticut proclaims Gustav Whitehead was truly the first to fly, not the Wright brothers. So there you have the pissing contest, right? North Carolina and Ohio have been in sort of this fun little back and forth, or not so fun, about who actually can claim the Wright brothers as their own. North Carolina does, Ohio does, and they for a 100 years they've been going back and forth on that. So now Connecticut is officially kind of throwing their hat in the ring. Now, historians have known for decades about an article in the Bridgeport Herald at the time which described Whitehead's 1901 flight and the reports have it that he flew for about a half mile at an altitude of 50 feet, but historians had yet to see any photos which should have accompanied the story. But has the photographic evidence finally been uncovered? A man by the name of John Brown, who's a resident of Germany and a hobby historian, has uncovered what he claims is a picture from a 1906 exhibition on flight innovation. And on display in the background of that picture was a photo of what looked like Whitehead's number 21 airplane in flight. And he also found dozens of newspaper articles that were describing the 1901 flight. And he sent the photo with the newspaper reports to the internationally renowned publication known as James All the World's Aircraft, based out of England. Uh, it's a very famous journal, apparently. I'd never heard of it prior to this, but it does have a reputation of being sort of the know-it-all for for airplanes. And Paul Jackson, who's the editor of Jane's, has ruled, this is the editor, that Whitehead deserves the honor of first flight, not the Wright brothers. Uh, Jackson says it's not likely the Bridgeport Herald writer and dozens of other people would lie in 1901 about such a thing.
4: Yeah, because nobody lied in 1901. (laughs) What the hell? That was such a stupid Quote. Like, really? They're not going to yep. lie? Well, all right. Maybe even if they didn't lie, which he hasn't – which I don't think he can rule out, they could also be mistaken or there's other options. It's not black or white. It's you know kind of a false dichotomy but oh boy. Yeah.
1: Robert Bartholomew wrote a whole book about – at that time, the invention of a flying machine was highly anticipated. There were mistaken accounts of flying machines all over the place. Yep. They were, you know, it was just ridiculous to say that eyewitness accounts of such were, is reliable evidence. And, th- I mean, this story falls apart when, when it gets investigated. You know, like, I'm, you know, I'm sure you're going to bring up, Evan, the fact that when these eyewitnesses, only one of the named eyewitnesses could be tracked down later and he denied the whole thing.
0: Mm hmm. That's right. Yeah. It was investigated. Yep. Yeah, a, uh, Gentleman from the Harvard University Committee on Research in the Social Science, representative. His name is John Crane, and uh, he went down to Connecticut, uh, af- you know, several years afterwards to. Review it and kind of figure out okay what's really going on here. And you're right, Steve. He started to interview the residents of Bridgeport to find out more details about the that 1901 flight and other flights made supposedly made by Whitehead at the time. And he couldn't find anybody except one person, one person only, who seemed to perhaps had a a, a recollection of the flight. You know, hardly. Several, you know, hard, it hardly stands up to the criteria you would need in order to validate right. such a, an important claim. It really does fall apart rather
1: fast. Now, Evan, did you, did you see the photo in question? I did
0: see the photo in question. What they did is, okay, picture this old photo, right, from 1906. And what they had to do in order to sort of focus in on the one part of, it's a photo of a gallery right so it's a photo of a bunch of photos and other things going on here they had to blow up one little picture that was hanging on the wall in the distance to kind of bring it into a range in which you could kind of start to make a shape out they said they had to uh, enlarge it what thirty two hundred percent uh and from
1: 3500 percent 3, enhance
0: I saw, But I, Evan,
1: it. I saw that on Blade Runner. It works really well.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it was per-
0: I,
1: on you know what CSI it
2: Miami. Like?
0: It's like the Loch Ness Monster photo or something. It's, it's like worse. A it's a blob.
1: It's a completely undifferentiated blob. It's ridiculous. It's worthless as evidence.
0: Terrible. It's worthless. Terrible.
1: So you have the evaporating eyewitness accounts and you have this blobby photo that's worthless as evidence and you have stories. But you also right. have lots of holes. If Whitehead flew two years before the Wright brothers, why didn't he fly again? Why that's didn't right. he fly again in a more public situation with, with photographers and, and video?
2: Maybe because the first time he flew is with his uh, girlfriend and she broke up with him right afterward and it just broke his heart and he could just never fly again.
1: Yeah. No video so
0: like but a film. It's
2: psychological, psychological thing.
1: So right but barring some extraordinary ridiculous <laughs> story like that then it, there's no reason why the his feat didn't become established as you know as the 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 beginning of flight if he had invented flight he would have invented flight right didn't uh yep. The Facebook guy said, "If he if they had invented Facebook, they would have invented Facebook. They would have invented Facebook. That's yeah. right. And you know, no
0: repli- Where are the replications uh, of him doing the flight, like like the Wright brothers did? They demonstrated over and over yeah. again.
1: Yeah, that's about- what that's what did it. You know, it wasn't just that first flight with the video with the with the film. It was then they did it in a very public setting shortly
4: after that. Yeah, but not just mm-hmm. not only that, they have a documented history of of what they learned and what they needed to learn in order in order to create powered flight. It's all there. They did yeah. tests and it's, they wrote it down and they it's just completely documented. Something that we of course don't have with with this other account. Yeah. I, I, you guys, I I found another angle to this. Um, the Hartford Current uh, published an article recently about this, and he, uh, they were talking about a gentleman named uh, Howell who published uh, an eyewitness article and about this and and let's see um i think it was in 19- 1901 he might have had this published um he what he and if you look at his description um as a, as an eyewitness he is basically describing a powered dirigible i mean the clues mm-hmm. are are blatant he talks about handling ropes there's no handling ropes for planes, but there certainly are for, for dirigibles. And he talks about the flight lasting 10 minutes and covering half a mile. Well, that's, if, if you average that out, that's about three miles <laughs> per hour, which is impossible. No plane is going to go three miles an hour. But for, for, uh, for a dirigible or a balloon, that, that's perfectly reasonable. And he also is quoted as saying things like the ship settled down um, as lightly on the ground as a bird. That's again. Planes aren't going to be doing that. And um, oh yeah, and in more detail, he says that after his uh, at the end of his half mile flight, uh, Whitehead shut off the power and settled down from a height of about fifty feet in two minutes after the propellers stopped. Hello, that sounds like an airship to me. So yeah. um, I mean, so I I just found that.
3: Yeah, it's Hartford
4: Current account, and that's a, that's another, and that actually makes it more reasonable that that this is just mm-hmm. a story that has that has some kernel of truth to it, but has been distorted and changed over the years, and now it's just, it's completely different. And uh, this seems much more likely than even you know, I mean, sure, maybe they they didn't lie, but they could have they could be mistaken, and it could be the, a big game of telephone over the years, and bam, this is that's what really yeah,
1: happened. that sounds like a very plausible scenario. Yeah, what do you guys think about Connecticut declaring? That uh, whitehead is the uh, has precedence in terms of being first in flight. Well, based on based it's on the evidence, it's,
4: oh, it's it's a, yeah, it's embarrassing. It, yeah, it's, yeah. you should be embarrassed, and you should move. You should move out of the state. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're it right. It just
3: doesn't. You it know. doesn't seem likely, Steve.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I think politicians shouldn't, you know, use the the legislative process in order to make scientific or historical decisions like that. You know, just let the experts make the decisions.
0: Now, um, one one footnote about the bill. <laughs> the bill also establishes the ballroom polka as the state polka and beautiful Connecticut waltz composed by Joseph Lego as the second state song. Thank so you it sounds for putting like...
2: this bill into perspective. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I, mean, but... <laughs> I mean, what the heck did they do? this? they tack this on as a writer or something? I mean, this is how, you know, this is, this is what drives me nuts about politics right. and stuff is that they'll bring a bill forth and then people will start throwing all kinds of crap onto the bill knowing it'll well, pass and they'll get their passed. I pen think it's just the stupid
2: stuff passed. nobody stupid. cares about bill. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm bill like let's name the state rabbit you know <laughs> the state bugs, bugs. Oh, all those sort of things
0: i mean the second state song give me a break <laughs>
2: second state song <laughs> oh, oh yeah it's, so it's the second there's already one state song and they need yeah, another yankee doodle yankee, yankee the doodle is yeah. the first one and what did they want the second one to be
0: the beautiful connecticut waltz composed by joseph lego
2: Oh my how God. many how are the, how many are they going to do? Like how many songs
1: does one state need? I wonder.
0: So that's a good question.
1: The state flower is the mountain laurel. Nobody cares.
0: And what's the state bird, Steve?
1: Uh, the robin. Like yes. like six or seven other states boring. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about how regular old Tylenol will save me from my existential fear.
2: Yeah. Well, maybe. Uh yeah, I mean you guys This is probably something that we're all familiar with on this show. Uh, you know, that one day you're going to die and uh, nobody really knows what's going to happen after you die, but chances are you're just going to decompose in the ground and, uh, no longer exist as a human being anymore. And basically your entire life is worthless. About that. Now, there's a very good chance that you're experiencing some, some small amount of existential dread. Uh, <laughs> well, fairly recent research, uh, suggests that Tylenol might help you right now. So anybody in our audience right now who is freaking out over their impending demise, uh, again, you are going to die one day. Uh, that is going to happen and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So now go, to, go have a Tylenol. Uh let us know how you feel. Send us an email. Uh we'll see if we can um support the findings of this study. It's it's a very interesting study, it was published in Psychological Science. Uh a team at the University of British Columbia studied uh how people react when they're thinking about their own death. So there were a couple of stages to the study. Um in one, they had uh one group of people think about their own impending doom. And they had another group think about dental pain. So another type of painful thought, but not specifically existential in nature. And what they found was that the people who were thinking about their own deaths. Oh, and I should say that. Um, so they had them they had them focus on either death or dental pain. And then they gave them this test, which is apparently a common test in psychological studies. But for some reason, this is the first time I'm coming across it. They had them s- pretend to be the judge in a case uh, in which they were trying a prostitute. And they had them as judges. Oh, trying
0: a post. Okay. Gotcha.
2: Yeah. yeah Double not, entendre, Not then. Trying, yes. Okay. Uh they had them as a judge set a bail amount, uh, in any amount. And what they found was that the people who uh were feeling existential dread uh tended to set a higher bail than the people who were thinking about dental pain, the thinking is that when you're thinking about your impending death, you feel some need to assert your values. Uh, so this is kind of a weird way to test this. Um, my first thought was if I were in that test, you know, my values would be just letting the prostitute go. <laughs> like, like, get out of here, honey, you're probably fine. Um, your mind's on the table. <laughs> but I guess they assumed that um, most people's values were against prostitution. So, uh, so yeah, the people in the existential dread group tended to set a higher bail amount. But the people in the existential threat group who took Tylenol as opposed to a placebo set a bail amount at the same level as the people who were just thinking about dental pain. So, in other words, the Tylenol seemed to compensate for whatever pain the existential dread was causing. And this follows on from other research that finds that painkillers can possibly, uh, have a positive effect on psychological pain, like social pain, uh, is, is what they call it. There have been some, some previous studies to support this, but this is the first one on existential dread. Um, excuse me. Uh, the one other test they did, which was quite funny, uh, the second study, um, confirmed the, the results and they did this one not by having people think about their impending doom, but just watching a video by David Lynch. So they just watched a David Lynch movie who, you know, surrealist. he did Twin Peaks, amongst other things. Um, Wild at Heart. The funniest thing to me about the study was that David Lynch movies had the same result as thinking about your own death. So David Lynch... Brings about oh. existential dread. Apparently,
1: it is. All, it is all interesting, but I do get the vibe. Like this is one of those psychological studies where the chain of reasoning is just a little bit long. You know, I mean, they're just. It's like a bridge too far, to to really hold together and to to. There's just too, the long chain of assumptions before you come to your conclusion.
2: It is a stretch. All of the pieces fit together, but. The pieces in general are very generic and could probably fit in with a lot of other things. Yeah, exactly.
1: Have you guys heard about the spinning pharaoh? Just to quickly finish up the news segment. Is that a new
0: ride at Six Flags?
1: Yeah. (laughs) There's a a relic of the god of death. Osiris. Osiris. (laughs) The curators noticed that the statue, little statuette, that has been sitting in this locked glass case for 80 years was facing the wrong way. So he initially thought that, Mm -hmm. well, perhaps someone was playing a trick on him. Um, so he turned it back the correct way and then noticed like a couple hours later it was facing. It had turned a little bit then it had turned a little bit more. So eventually he set up a camera and took a time-lapse video. And in the time-lapse, you could see the, the statuette just slowly rotating around and it turns 180 degrees by itself. It's pretty cool looking. So what do you guys think about that?
2: Oh, it's obviously magic. Yeah. It's ghost. And it's, uh, no, they have turntables if you've seen then. the video, you're cursed. And in seven days, you'll probably die. <laughs> yeah.
1: The uh, the statue will come out of your computer screen and kill you. Yeah. yeah. Headbutt you. The local news is having fun with this. Um, I haven't really heard any like serious um, supernatural interpretations of this. It is just a, a, a cute little mystery. But one thing that I think solves the case is the observation that the statue only spins during the day when there are people walking around the museum.
0: Hmm, gee, what yeah. could that
1: possibly yeah. mean? So it's probably just vibrations from people walking around. And, you know, you've probably seen that happen. You know, little vibrations could cause something to slightly skitter, you know, slowly skitter or move around on a flat surface. Just the way its base is fitting to the to the counter that it's on, the vibrations cause it to slowly inch its way around. It makes perfect sense.
4: Well, one, so, woman, one woman who uh, works there thinks – Thought she had discounted that possibility. She said that she she was working with it uh, for a while, for a few hours during the day, and where there's like I, th- I don't know if it was like a Sunday or whatever, but there was no foot traffic nearby, and she said that it did shift, and but nobody was walking, so she's like, well, how do you explain that? And still, that's definitely not a uh, a deal killer. I mean, there's still other ways there could you know who knows how far away the people would have to be in order to set up these vibrations. They don't have to be right you know right near it. They could be in the next room or or farther away, or even maybe on another floor. It's possible. It's possible if there's if there's enough people. Or it's, even maybe on another planet.
1: Street traffic, you know, could produce enough vibrations. <laughs>
4: exactly. Just you know, just do, do it. Just do some simple tests if you really want to, you know, show that it's that it's the vibrations. I mean, it shouldn't be too hard. All right, Evan. So we yeah. we we have an interview with Paul Offit coming up in just a few
1: moments. But first, Evan's going to get us all caught up on who's that noisy.
0: Yeah, we have some catch-up to do from prior episodes. All right, so let's get caught up. Uh, Going back to uh, episode 413, we had this clip, so let's play it now.
2: I won't stand here and watch you murder your patients just because you can't be bothered to read the latest science.
0: So, many correct guesses on this one. That was uh, Hugh Dancy portraying Dr. Mortimer Granville in the film Hysteria. Did you see the movie, Rebecca?
2: I haven't seen it yet. It's been on my list for a while now. haven't gotten
0: around to it. I do do have to see it. Lots of correct answers. Arthur Brown, your name was drawn. You are the winner for episode 413. Congratulations. Episode 414. Okay, so this one uh, was a puzzle, if you will recall. There is a machine and the machine does one thing. It shuffles playing cards, but the machine always rearranges cards in the same way relative to the original order of the cards. All the hearts let's say their hearts, are arranged in order from ace to king, and they're put into the machine. Now the cards are shuffled and then put into the machine again. So after this second shuffling, the cards came out in the following order. Ten, nine, queen, eight, king, three, four, ace, five, jack, six, two, seven. So the audience needed to figure out what was the order of the cards after the first shuffle. A lot of people actually got the uh, correct answer. Correct answer being... For those who care, 9-ace-4-queen-jack, 7-3-2-10-5-king-8-6. I will direct all of our listeners to our forums. That's sguforums.com. Look for the topic, Who's That Noisy? Episode 414, uh, for all the uh, various solutions as to how people arrived at that solution. The winner for that week is R. Moore from the message boards. I can only imagine the R stands for Roger, but we'll call him R. Moore. Congratulations. And then finally, we're going to go to episode number 415 in which we played this
5: noisy. So on the night that they finished filming the movie and it was completely edited, he made a disc and the first person ever to actually see the entire film besides Spielberg himself was Johnny Carson. He's
1: Right. So, what was that about, Evan? But that's
0: the voice of Frank Abagnale Jr.,
5: mm-hmm.
0: whom you all know as the character from Catch Me If You Can, a great movie about a con artist, right? A kid yeah. who, who, who fooled so many people, who fooled the FBI for years and made millions of dollars pretending to be a pilot and a lawyer and a doctor. I read
2: his book when I was a kid, and I loved it.
0: Yeah, he doesn't uh, come uh, come up much in uh, skeptical conversation, but uh, I like that clip in particular uh, because of the, you know, because of the con artist aspect of it. And also, you know, mentioning Johnny Carson is always a bonus because Carson was, in fact, a fantastic skeptic. Right. Very few correct answers on this one. In fact, there was only one correct guess. And uh, the winner that week, rueful Rabbit from the message boards. Well done.
1: Good job. And what do you got for this week?
0: All right. So for this week, we're going to have another classic Who's That Noisy?
5: Listen, all magic is is scientific principles presented like mystical hoodoo, which is fun,
2: but it's sort of irresponsible. I got your magic right here. So another My Little Pony.
0: Is magic. <laughs> no, it's not My Little Pony. We've done My Little Pony already, but that's a good guess. And this week's uh, Who's That Noisy was uh, submitted by uh, listeners Abigail and Akiva Weismer from Israel. So thank you guys for submitting this week's. We'll have everyone send their guesses to our email address, wtn at skepticsguide.org, or as I mentioned before, com. That's where you find our message board. Good luck, everyone.
1: All right. Thanks, Evan. Uh, let's go on to email. Uh, the first email comes from Russ Bishop from Didsbury, Canada, and he writes, Hi rogues, you already know everyone loves you, so I'll skip to the point. I recently listened to a podcast dedicated to an often forgotten skeptic, H.P. Lovecraft, and listening to the episode devoted to Herbert West. Reanimator. They mentioned historical experiments where animal heads were transplanted to other bodies and survived. This set off a ping on my Skepdar, and I researched further. I found reference to a journal article in Surgical Neurology International in which the author, claim, uh, the author claims to lay the groundwork for the first successful surgical transplant of a human head. As a layperson, it seems like a plausible medical intervention. That being said, I'd love to hear the SGU tackle both the plausibility of the procedure and the ramifications such a procedure could have on our society. Could this be the, the key to Bob's immortality? Uh huh. What do you guys think? Is our head transplants plausible?
4: Yeah, definitely. Sure. I, yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, uh, be, be, what about the, blood? What about blood uh, type? Fiendishly what complicated. What about spinal? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a
2: huge number of whatabouts, but it is theoretically possible. Like, I think these things are overcomable by (laughs) technology.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's a word. It's a word. Uh,
0: Eventually, you're not breaking the laws of physics
4: by transplanting heads. Yeah. The question is will we find it necessary to do that, you know, considering other other advances that would come along with that?
1: So here is this, the status, technologically, of head transplants. Um, the the uh, early experiments were performed by a gentleman called Dr. R.J. White. 1973 transplanted one monkey head onto the body of another monkey, uh, and he, was, he declared the operation a partial success because the resulting <laughs> monkeys survived for a few days.
2: Yeah, I was about to say, the monkey didn't well, declare it a success. Yeah,
4: that's for sure. yeah but he didn't well, actually attach it, though, Steve, did he? Yeah, he attached it. He was it. actually yep. attached. Yeah, it was actually attached, yes. And To what level of
0: uh, activation or All right, so animation did this thing have? None.
1: So that's the thing. It's really not a transplant, in my opinion. It's a graft. He basically was using the body of another monkey as a life support system for a severed head. But there was no functional... Attachment. Uh, the, the head was not in any way connected to the body neurologically. It wasn't feeling it, what couldn't control it, couldn't move it. Technically, what you have to do is cool down both the donor and the recipient as, as, you know, for, as far as possible and then make a nice clean sever and you have a, you know, a short amount of time to reattach the arteries to get the blood flowing to the, to the brain. So again the body basically becomes a life support system sending blood supply to um to the head uh to the donor head. The big problem is in the spinal cord. You know, you sever the spinal cord and just putting the two pieces of the spinal cord next to each other isn't going to cause it to to regrow. That that's why by the way this is probably not going to be a treatment for spinal cord injury because if you could get The spinal cord on the transplanted head to reattach, to attach rather to the body, then you could probably get, repair the spinal cord injury that you're trying to fix in the first place.
4: Exactly, yeah.
1: There was also a series of experiments by a Soviet surgeon, Vladimir Demikov, uh, who was attaching dog heads onto other dogs. But he wasn't cutting off the head of the recipient. You know, he wasn't grafting a dog's head onto the neck of another dog, he was grafting a second head onto an intact dog. Whoa! So then you ended it's like
2: up like a Cerberus type.
1: Yeah, deal. except it's only two heads. You ended up with these two-headed dogs. But again, nothing was functionally attached. It was just again, the the head was grafted on. Uh, the dog, the, the the transplanted dog's head would drink, and then the water would just go out a, an open end of the of the esophagus and sort of drain back out on the floor. It, obviously, there was no control or feeling. So. The Whoa. transplanted head seemed pretty miserable, probably mm. not yeah right, completely ethical you know research I yeah, think
3: not even close, Steve
1: <laughs> Jesus in two thousand and two, Japanese scientists transplanted the heads of infant rats onto the thighs of adults. why that just
2: seems cruel, like why.
1: They did this because they that? wanted what? to create an animal model to study the effects of, of ischemia, lack of oxygen, on the developing brain.
2: Science be crazy.
1: Yeah, that is like <laughs> that is like mad scientist type stuff.
2: Yeah, some wow. Dr. Moreau shit right there. Yeah, right.
1: But very recently, an Italian neurosurgeon, Sergio Cannavaro, wrote a paper in which he said that the greatest technical hurdle to a head transplant is, of course, the connection of the donors and the recipient's spinal cord's it is my contention that the technology only now exists for such linkage. several up to now hopeless medical connections might benefit from such a procedure that might be conditions, but uh, that 's the way it was translated so yeah i don 't know I kind of disagree with Dr yeah, where the hell is isavera he so well he 's saying that i mean there, are, there there is a lot of research being done at sp- done on spinal cord regeneration, a lot of it actually oh, sure. in in the neurology department at Yale, for example. Figuring out why nerves regenerate but the spinal cord doesn't and maybe being able to coax the spinal cord to regenerate, you know, grafting nerves so that the spinal cord will grow across the gap, you know, like using scaffolding. He's saying that he's, he's actually just wildly speculating that if you, we would be able to get much better outcomes than we're currently getting with trauma, with spinal cord trauma, if you made a clean surgical cut The cut would be so fresh and so sharp that it would allow for a much greater reconnection to be made and that you could use some kind of plastic to sort of fuse the two ends of the spinal cord together to like glue them together and that then they would be able to to regenerate, they'd be able to connect together. But this hasn't been done. He's just speculating. He's just saying he thinks that this would be the case. But there's there's no evidence really to support this. So there there is some hope here. I do think in 20, 30 years or whatever, you know, we, we might have made some significant strides in getting spinal cords to regenerate. Just not right now.
3: Steve, how long have you been on Hulu Plus? Now, I've been using it for a couple of months now. My wife and I really love it. Yeah, I actually signed up as soon as it came out. I've been pretty heavily addicted to it. It's just awesome. You know, it has a ton of shows on there that I love. It's 7.99 per month. If you want to help support the SGU, just go out and try your free account. You know, look at the listing, you're going to love the shows they have on there. I watch, I'm currently watching Downton Abbey. They have the Star Trek the original series and the next generation on there.
1: Yeah, I love when there's there are good shows that you just never got into because of time and whatever, like uh Joss and I now are watching Once Upon a Time. So we have a couple of seasons. We could just watch them one after the other whenever we have free time. It's great.
3: Now, right now, they're offering an extended free trial of Hulu Plus that's only available to podcast listeners. So this is a good time to get your free account and check it out.
1: Yeah, and you have to go to HuluPlus.com
3: forward slash SGU to make sure we get credit for it. So, Steve, do you watch on your well, on your TV? Like, how are you actually watching it?
1: Yeah, we just watch it on our TV because we get Hulu Plus right through the TV. You can also get access to it through your iPad, through pretty much any
3: multimedia device. Yeah, I watch it on my iPad. Yeah, so that's it. We're in an on-demand world now. I watch what I want when I want. I'm totally spoiled. So go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. And just by checking out your free account, you can help support the SGU. All right. Well, let's go on with our interview.
1: Joining us now is Dr. Paul Offit. Paul, welcome back to The Skeptic's
5: Guide. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be back.
1: And Dr. Offit is the chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, but is well known for writing a number of books, including Autism's False Prophets, Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All. And we are here to talk to him tonight about his new book, Do You Believe in Magic? The Sense and Nonsense of Alternative Medicine. So, Paul, you're not a fan of so-called alternative medicine, huh?
5: Not a big fan, no. What's the harm? (laughs) (laughs) So why did you decide to write this book? The real answer to that question is I had microfracture knee surgery about uh, two and a half, three years ago. And in in my recovery, when I saw the orthopedist, who's, you know, University of Pennsylvania sports medicine orthopedist, he said to me that I needed to take chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine, that what that would do for me is that it would help put down new collagen following this microfracture surgery. And in addition, it would help reduce the inflammation that was, that would be associated with the pain that was certainly a big part of that recovery. And it surprised me. I mean, I'd never, certainly hadn't ever heard about that in medical school. It amazed me that, that one, that that could happen, that, that eating chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine could in fact lay down new, uh, new collagen, given that it helped, help commonly synthesize that, that, uh, that is, uh, d- during, you know, one's typical day. And, and the notion that it had any kind of anti-inflammatory uh, activity was just surprising to me. And, and, and so I looked. I mean, I went, and there were a couple papers that had been published, one in the New England Journal of Medicine and others in Annals of Internal Medicine showing that it did neither. And, it just really upset me that we that here this, this classically trained orthopedist was basically recommending an alternative medicine, and, and at that point, I realized that there was no distinction really between the conventional therapist and the alternative therapist that, in fact, we had all crossed over to the dark side, and it was really upsetting. Yeah, and in fact, just
1: recently, we talked about the fact that the uh, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons came out with a review of uh, treatments that work and don't work for a knee osteoarthritis and they give a big thumbs down to glucosamine and chondroitin so that they, they like you reviewed the evidence and said nope the evidence shows it doesn't
5: work right and i think the reason that he recommended it is i think he thought he was he was helping me uh, um i think that the reason really that uh that that people like this surgeon was offering that is that he feels it's it's something the patient wants he's it's, he's sort of like a Waiter in a restaurant, here, why don't you try some of this? It just was a little loose. Did you ask him? Yes, I asked him very much so. I, I, because it didn't make sense to me. And, you know, because you want your doctor to like you, I actually went to the general nutrition center and bought both of these, which, in frankly, I think the glucosamine wasn't particularly cheap because, you know, when you go back next time, you, you want him to, uh, to like you, if, if if he asks you how you're doing, you say you're not doing great, and he asks you whether you're taking the things he requested, and you say no, you know, you're a bad guy. So I wanted to do it his way, but, you know, he sort of put me in a bind by offering something that didn't make sense. And when I sort of pushed him on it on what the data were, he basically just said, trust me. And, and so that was upsetting.
0: He hmm. clearly works for big glucosamine out there. It's obvious.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I mean, but there could be a number of motivations on his part. One is that he simply was not familiar with the evidence. Maybe he had read a preliminary study and, but didn't do a deep enough dive to be well informed. Maybe he, as you say, just thought it makes his patients happy. It's something to do. And what's the harm? Uh, or maybe he's got some kind of ideological to, behind that. So, did, did you get a feel for like where which one of those categories he fell into or was it something else? No, I think he, he didn't
5: know. And you know, you could make the argument that that were I to take it and now with an expectation that I would do better, and, and were I to do better at, without having to take things like you know celebrex or Vextra or, or, uh, or something or something or anti-inflammatories antiinflammatories that that would have been of value, right? Because I I think chondroitin, sulfate, and glucose, meanwhile, not uh, particularly cheap or in any sense effective, is probably safe and arguably safer than than those drugs. So you could argue that had I done well with that uh, or at least perceived myself as doing well, he would have been doing me a service.
2: His response of trust me is really troubling, though, because, I mean, at at some point, yes, all us lay people have to put our trust in doctors because they've put all this energy, all this work, all this education into what they're doing. But I think the mark of a good doctor is somebody who can sit down and convey the basics of Of why he or she is recommending a certain treatment and the drawbacks and the possible benefits of those treatments. I think a a response like trust me is the sort of thing that's actually going to drive more people into looking at alternative medicine.
5: Full full disclosure first of all he's a surgeon so it's not like they're in the business of spending a lot of time explaining things to their patients. I mean that's more likely the province of the internist yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, He also grew up in Wilmington and was actually best friends with, uh, with Mehmet Oz, so maybe that was part of it too.
1: Ah. Oh my, that's, that's Ooh, interesting. Oh that's probably not uh, irrelevant in this situation. Enough said. Um, but <laughs> since, since Rebecca brings it up, I mean, I did have one quibble uh, with uh, with the book at the beginning. I mean, it's a, it's a great book. I, I I loved it. But, especially the parts where you quote me, those are the best. But having said that, <laughs> um, the... the uh, Right at the beginning, you say two things which are very common, which uh, I've personally investigated because I heard them so often. Again, like you, I'm like, really? Is that really true? One is that people uh, find their way to alternative medicine because they're dissatisfied with mainstream medicine. And it turns out that the evidence does not support that, that the, the few surveys that are out there and where people are asked, why are you using alternative medicine, They they don't cite Dissatisfaction with their doctor or mainstream medicine as a reason. They say because essentially because they were either ideologically predisposed uh, or because they were told they heard good things. You know, they were given recommendations by the press or by, by friends or acquaintances. Um, but, the, but I think the, even al- alternative medicine proponents have been so successful at just propagating that idea that, oh, people are flocking to us because they're unhappy with mainstream medicine, that even mainstream medicine physicians think that that's the case. But the the evidence just doesn't support it.
5: That's interesting. I I hadn't known that. I guess I sort of drank the Kool-Aid on this too. I guess you you read it so many times, uh, eventually you believe the lie. So so I accept that. So so you went
1: on this journey to look, you know, do a deep dive on alternative medicine and tell us some of the things, some of the shocking things that you found.
5: I, I guess the most shocking was the megavitamin story. I mean, you know, my wife's mother, you know, is, is, is a big Linus Pauling disciple. She's always putting about 40 megavitamin pills in front of her husband. I would say she called every week my wife to make sure she was taking her vitamins, many of which were in excess of the recommended daily allowance. And And, you know, my wife would sort of give them to me, which I took mindlessly, idiotically. And, and As I sort of read through this, not just the Pauling story, but the more recent data, the last few years on the use of, you know, large doses of vitamin A, E, beta carotene, and then a mineral selenium, that you actually increase your risk of cancer, risk of heart disease, and shorten your life. That surprised me. It surprised me that, that, and, you know, as referred to in the, in the medical literature as the antioxidant paradox, it surprised me one that it's really not a sci- it's not scientifically controversial, and two, no one knows about it, you know, including me. So I, I, well, I was really most surprised by that. I would say of all the things. Yeah, yeah, that's that's
1: one of those things we've talked about that on the show before too. It's like you grow up thinking, oh yeah, vitamin C, man, it's like the elixir of life, you know. It's take just it's the thing that everybody knows that it's good for you, prevents the cold, you know, it, 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 and. Uh, taking your vitamins is like one of those things that parents tell their kids so it gets drummed into you, but you 're right the data doesn 't support it it
5: doesn 't support mega dosing yeah the The other thing that surprised me actually was as I'm the head of the therapeutic standards committee at our hospital, so so not surprisingly, um, there are many doctors in our hospital who want to use some of these dietary supplements. I mean, the, I would say that as a class of drugs, it's the fifth most commonly used class of drugs on our formulary. So I'm talking about you know melatonin, coenzyme Q10, uh, echinacea, kava, etc. And so we. Basically, what, what it boils down to is we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, the Joint Commission's of Hospital Accreditation asks us to treat these substances as drugs. Fair enough. They act as drugs. Um, that's a reasonable request. On the other hand, the Food and Drug Administration doesn't regulate them, so we're caught in the middle. And, mm-hmm. and Really, just on the surface, it violates our home medication policy. Our home medication policy is you can bring in a medication from home, and if we guarantee, can guarantee that it is what you say it is and it's been stored correctly, we'll let you use it, even though it comes from home. This violates our home medication policy on its face because we can't guarantee that what it says on the label is actually what's in the bottle. And so so we're trying – we are in the process of trying to initially play it halfway with the the people on our staff, and it's primarily cardiology and metabolism and neurology that sort of insist on this, um, we just said, okay, there aren't safety data. There aren't efficacy data. All we ask for from these companies is a certificate of analysis, just something that states that when you say it's 200 milligrams of coenzyme Q10, it is 200 milligrams of coenzyme Q10 and nothing else. And for the most part, we could never get them. Uh, You know, the companies would say. It's proprietary. What's well, not proprietary? We're not asking them how they make it. We're just asking them to, to support what's in that bottle. And they wouldn't even do that. And so for that reason, I think at the end of this month, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is basically taking dietary supplements off the formulary until we, unless we can find at least certificate analysis for, uh, for some of these products. It's been really a struggle. And that too was surprising. The other thing that was surprising is, is, when we looked, I, I, I wanted to find dietary supplements that work because otherwise you look like a complete jerk, right? I mean, there's 54,000 <laughs> out there. There must be something that works. So, I mean, folic acid was easy and certainly vitamin D for people who, uh, you know, who, for babies who are breastfed, that's easy. But, you know, even the, the sort of the calcium and, and, and vitamin D story, you know, was not a clear one, nor is omega 3. You just couldn't find anything that clearly worked. And, and, uh, it was shocking. From following this for years, I've sort of come to the conclusion
1: that we have this homeostasis where we need just moderate levels of all of these nutrients, and that's it. And then pushing anything beyond those moderate levels isn't beneficial to health. I mean, I think that's just the overarching conclusion of all of study, the studies that we've
5: done over the last 50 years. You know, you're going to be surprised by this uh, Friday. I have to appear on uh, NPR Science Friday with Ira Flato, and uh, they insisted cool. that there be somebody from, quote, unquote, the other side. So, so they asked who I would recommend to be on on this other side. So I said, you know, why don't you have Josephine Briggs? I mean, you know, she's not great, but she's at least, I think, trying to do something in the realm of uh, that involves the scientific method. So there's there's something to be said for that, although I, she's not perfect. But in any case, but they said no. They said she's too close to you. We we have to have somebody who's on the other side. I said the other side of science. It is Science Friday, right? It's not like Mysticism Friday. And, um,
1: yeah, and for our audience, Josephine Briggs is the director of the National Center for Complementary
5: and Alternative Medicine. Right, and yeah. and, and, it's, and so they end up pick. They end. I don't know the the woman um, particularly, but she's she works with Andrew Weil in, at the University of Arizona, and so that's who I'm going to be on with, which is you know a little frightening.
2: That's really horrific. I mean, Science Friday. Everybody I know listens to Science Friday and worships <laughs> Plato, so to speak. Uh, that's so disappointing that they're insisting on having someone from the fictional side.
1: Yeah, it's the false balance approach.
0: Yeah, I mean, if they were going to use this as an example of what science isn't, right, and put it in that context, that's okay. But they're may, they're legitimizing this.
1: I agree. You've already lost the battle just by going up on equal terms against a
5: pseudoscientist, essentially. Yeah, I think it's going to be hard. I agree. I, I'm a little stuck at this point, but it's a long story. But I, I think I'm going to have to do this. I mean, I've been on his show several times, and and he's great on, on sort of the physical sciences, astronomy, quarks. He's great, but but when it comes to health, he's really not amazing. I, I, you know, he's. I've been on his show the last two times. He's had he sort of entertains calls occasionally, and he's entertained calls from anti-vaccine folks far longer than than is beneficial to his audience. And I tried to call him after the last show, but he. He didn't return my call. So I don't know. I guess we'll see how this goes. Hmm.
1: Well, in terms of like alternative practitioners, you know, you, you talked about supplements. Is science going to be the answer here? Is here? If studying these things by the NCAM isn't going to be the solution, is, can we educate the public or do we just have to regulate these things out of existence?
5: I think that we are – I think educating the public would be a – almost impossible task, because you are going up against a multi-billion dollar industry that spends a lot of money trying to educate the public in the opposite direction. We don't have that kind of money, nor do we have that kind of political connections or media savvy. So I think it would be an impossible task. I mean, that one quote that I have in the book from uh, Joe Fortunato, who was the CEO of the, the GNC Corporation, he said, we just ignore these studies. Um, we It doesn't affect our business and I that's exactly right painful as it is that's exactly right he was talking about the megavitamin studies I mean it's a little painful to 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 hear a a person say when studies are published showing that these this this massive doses of antioxidants can in fact decrease your ability to oxidize which is to say something that's required by immune cells to kill new cancer cells it makes biological sense and now we have data to support it that that we're just going to ignore these studies but it doesn't affect our business I mean so so to me no, I think the only real chance we have is to is to take a step back and say that you can't put these things on the market shelf until you have profi- a profile of safety and advocacy that informs the consumer. I mean, these products are so pathetic in a sense that we can't get certificates of analysis on them to to say simply that it it's, it is what it's claimed to be on the label. I mean, it's that yeah. But
1: uh, you bring up a good point so the industry is behaving like industries do in their own interest. They they want to be coy about their ingredients. They don't why should they invest money in research when it can only hurt them? They'll happily ignore studies which show that their products are not safe or effective. Uh, but how then did they get this mom and pop nature you know, goody-two-shoe reputation as opposed to evil big pharma when, in fact, their behavior is far worse than big pharma and or they're the same thing, right? I mean, the companies are the same, but pharmaceutical companies are happy to make profits selling supplements and not having to do research.
5: Right. I, I think that, to me, is is the, the ultimate triumph of marketing. I, I mean, because when I've done some of these, these radio interviews recently and they'll be call-ins, it'll always be this notion that you have big pharma and conventional medicine on one side and then you have these sort of mom-and-pop operations, you know, where, where these products are made, you know, by elves and, and old hippies. And, yeah. and You know, and, and, and in fact... This is big pharma. I mean, Pfizer just bought that which are the, the largest company that makes megavitamins, and you know, Huffman LaRoche has certainly been in, in the manufacture of, of vitamins since the nineteen thirties. So this, in some ways, is big pharma, and and they just uh, because they'll get involved in, in anything that they think can make the money. I mean, Pfizer's buying of Emergen for for you know for billions was. Tells you something about this, and this is a company that's certainly perfectly capable of doing the studies that are required by the FDA to get uh, to get licensure. But here they get a free pass. Yeah, I
1: agree. It's a, it's a triumph of marketing, and because you know there's billions of dollars behind it, as you say. Where there's and you and I know well, I certainly know this. There's no money doing what we do, right? Being trying to champion science and medicine is uh, is. Not profitable.
5: Yeah, you know, it would surprise me actually. I had to do a Sanjay Gupta show on CNN, and it was it was perfectly reasonable. It was about 15 minute interview, and and then I saw the edited version um, this past weekend. And what surprised me was that the probably the biggest group that represents these di- the dietary supplement industry, the lobbying group that represents the in- industry, is is called the Council for Responsible Nutrition. Always a warning sign, right? Whenever the word responsible is in the title, watch out. I feel the same <laughs> way about the word justice, actually. But you know, so and so, you know, their kind comment, of, what they should have said was, was, you know, people have been using these medicines for, for, for these remedies for decades. It's a chance for people to take control of their own health. I mean, the usual story. But But what they said that surprised me was, they actually talked about me. They said, you know, you should um, this is just one man. He's he has he has an opinion that's unique. There's you know, there's uh, the quote was something like, um, you know, the vast weight of the medical establishment is, in fact, in support of these products and basically don't read his book, I, which is really what they said. It which shocked me because you can ignore me. I mean, I'm nobody. They are a, a huge industry that can market anything I say away, not a problem. That they chose to attack me, I, I thought was surprising and stupid. I don't know who their PR people they are, but they should fire them. <laughs> or maybe
2: it's maybe it's complimentary. I mean, maybe it means that you're
5: scaring them which is a good thing no i can't scare them they they are as steve said they are huge they they i mean you just when i do these radio interviews it's funny they have me on when i just listen to the commercials for the couple minutes before i go on it's all about this stuff you know the, the <laughs> vitamins and supplements and then they ask me what you know what to say it's like it's just you, you feel it's it's hopeless you know yeah. to, Convince the public,
1: but we we keep trying anyway, though, right?
5: And we will, and we'll, I, I will not stop. Don't worry, I, I'm not discouraged. I'll, I'll keep going. But I, I I see it's like it is, it is a task.
1: Well, Paul, thank you so much for for writing this book, for fighting the good fight, for coming on our show to talk about it.
5: Well, thank you. It's my pleasure.
2: Thanks, Paul.
4: Thanks, Paul.
2: It's time for science or fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Just got three regular news items this week. You guys ready?
4: Let's do it. Yep. Evan's ready. All
1: right. Here we go. Item number one. For the first time, researchers have identified a single gene producing a single mRNA that encodes for two separate proteins. Item number two, a new analysis of worldwide copper resources indicates that we will pass peak copper production within 30 years. And item number three, new research finds that some species of hawk moths produce ultrasound from their genitals, probably to jam echolocation from predatory bats. (laughs) Echolocation from their genitals. (laughs) No, it's ultrasound from their genitals to jam echolocation from bats.
0: <laughs> so how how many how many different ways can you go with that one, Jay? so you're stunned.
3: Yeah, I'm. I'm like, I don't even know how. To, all right, I'm going to start with that one. So this new research finds that some species of hawk moths produce an ultrasound from their genitals, and it's and it jams predatory bats. <laughs> how do you how do I dissect that? I mean, is there nutsack flapping as they fly? Like, is it vibrating? like how steve is there penis like flopping around like a like a you know propeller
1: all good questions
3: i'm, I'm flux <laughs> and i'm okay with living in a world where these types of things happen i just i don't know how to vet this one the one about the uh, worldwide copper resources and we're going to hit peak copper in 30 years i thought we were already in a copper problem that one potentially could be wrong and The first one is researchers identifying the single gene producing a single mRNA. That's interesting. Mm. I think the copper one is the fake.
0: Okay, Evan. Gene producing a single mRNA. Uh, Encoding for two separate proteins. I I don't know what to say about that. But moving on, new analysis of worldwide copper resources. Well, this one's easy because, you know, we we need coppers as we need, you know, ratio to robbers. So, mm-hmm. it's obvious Whoa. what's going on there. That's
3: right, copper. Okay, we got it.
0: Past peak production Damn, man, within 30 years. That's right, copper. And then the last one, the hawk moths produce ultrasound from their genitals, probably to jam echolocation. Yeah. Okay. They don't exactly know why it's happening. They're just assuming. So, they're not really making a firm statement in that regard. I'm kind of thinking that that one's going to wind up being true. So it's copper or mRNA. I'll have to go with my dear friend Jay and say copper resources. That one is the fiction.
4: Okay, Bob. Yeah, I've heard of. I guess it was it was moths that can jam that can jam the echolocation of bats. Uh, that, was a while, that was a long time ago though. Maybe it's six seven months ago. But uh, this is definitely a new a new take on that. Sure, I guess it's possible uh the the peak copper i have just no idea about that um i don't know anything about copper reserves how much that's plausible at all so i really can't really comment on that one and i mean the one if i had to pick one that i had the biggest problem with would be the mrna one i mean uh, one gene single mrna but it's encoding for two separate proteins i mean how how is that possible uh yeah i guess because of that i've nothing really more to go on since that one seems the least plausible to me i'll say mrna is the fiction okay rebecca
2: yeah this these are very difficult good job steve i haven't heard any of these uh i'm going to say that the hawk moths is science just because i want it to be science uh, <laughs> and we've talked about plants using echolocation to attract bats so why can't hawk that, moths
4: that was
1: that was the fiction
2: <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh,
1: <laughs> well, crap. <No. laughs> uh, All right. You did tell her that. <laughs> is that not a thing?
2: Uh, I thought that was a science. Okay. Yes. No, the well, the, le- the
1: leaves were just like reflective dishes, not emitting sound. Oh, right,
2: right, right. Yeah, but no, that my point stands. Using echolocation to attract bats. That's what I said. Not, I didn't say producing ultrasound. But like, so uh, what I was saying is that there are other Species that adapt to deal with bats' ultrasound in ways that benefit them. So that's all I'm saying. Yeah, that I can I can see that happening, and I like it. I want it to be true. So science. Uh, I don't know anything about RNA, so I don't know the copper one. I also don't know anything about copper resources. But this is what I'm thinking: copper, probably mostly used in uh, technology, right? So I can imagine that. It's in high demand because of cables and stuff. But we're increasingly turning into a wireless world. So within 30 years, maybe we won't actually have a need for copper anymore. So we won't have this problem. So for that reason, I'm going to say that that one's the fiction.
1: Okay. So this week, Bob's all by his lonesome. But you guys all agree that new research finds that some species of hawk moths produce ultrasound from their genitals – Probably to jam echolocation from predatory bats. All think that one is science, and that one is science.
0: Hooray.
1: Right. Uh, too, too freaky
0: almost. So, as I Not close, Steve, is, the,
1: is something flopping around? So, you might say that the hawk moths are cock blocking the bats.
2: Oh. <laughs> you
1: might, I'm just you might say that. to say that.
2: You might. You might, if you if you had been planning
1: all day to say that, that is what you would <laughs> say. Couldn't yeah. wait. Have you guys? I just thought of it. Have you guys ever seen a hawk moth? Yes. No. Yeah. So. I'm sure
0: I have, but never
1: realized it. They're cool. I mean, you you think they're like a hummingbird when you see them. They're huge. Yeah. Oh. These huge moths. Um, and they they kind of fill the same niche. You know, they they are pollinators. They have long proboscis, long nose, with which they drink nectar. So, yeah, there's at least three species of of hawk moth moth identified by the researchers. Yeah, these are in uh, Malaysia. And they found that they uh, were able to produce ultrasound from their genitals. Now, it doesn't get more specific than that, but it does say including the females. Whoa. I guess both sexes can do it. And they're not sure what the purpose of it is, but they suspect that they're using it as like a jamming to jam the echolocation. Because – the bats just feast on these hawk moths. I mean, so that they, they—that that is their main food source, and, and that's their main, the hawk moth's main predator. So it makes sense that it would be a defense mechanism, you know, allowing them to
4: avoid bats. Cool. I, I would think that to create ultrasound frequencies, you would, it just doesn't seem like you could do it from genitals. You it would, you'd think you would need something that is secured. Maybe not genitals. Yeah. You, you'd think you need something secured, not at one end, but both ends, so that you could achieve the high. Frequency, but just can't imagine something just flopping around doing that. I'm
1: sh- yeah, I'm sure it's not something flopping around. Yeah, I'm sure it's tight. But yeah. these <laughs> are not the only oh <laughs> insects. These are not the only insects to produce ultrasound, although they are the first in the uh, Lepidoptera to be found to do so. Uh, so yeah, very cool. I kind of figured that you guys would get this one because it's like one of those that it's too weird for me to make up. Yeah. But I just I couldn't resist mm-hmm. including all of those details up front. It's too interesting. Uh, okay, yeah. let's go back to number one. For the first time, researchers have identified a single gene producing a single mRNA that encodes for two separate proteins. Bob, you think this one is a fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is science.
4: Ah, crap. Wow. Sorry,
1: Bob. How does it, Bobby, it work? You knew just enough to get this one wrong. Yes, this one is that, this that one happens is,
4: so often to me. Is this uh-huh. is, is, is
1: very interesting? This is you know they're calling this like paradigm shifting. You know, very exciting because it's not supposed to do that. You know, one gene, one protein. This is this is the paradigm. Now there there are genes that produce two mRNAs or multiple mRNAs that can produce multiple proteins. But this is the first time that a single mRNA—that's the messenger RNA. That takes the signal from the, you know, the template from the DNA to the ribosome, and then, which is then transcribed into the protein. So if you have one mRNA, how, how are you getting two proteins out of it? It's one set of instructions. Yeah, right. Well, this is what they found. They found that there's a sequence called the internal ribosomal entry site, IRES, which is normally at the beginning of the mRNA, and it basically tells the ribosome, begin transcribing here. Uh, On this mRNA, there's a second one in the middle of the mRNA, and so the ribosome can transcribe from either the beginning or from the middle, producing two distinct proteins from the same mRNA. Oh, man. First time that was discovered. Yeah, very cool.
4: I I wish I knew as little as you guys, and I wouldn't have this problem. (laughs) 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 All right, and- Uh Backhanded. All of this means oh. that a new analysis of
1: worldwide <laughs> copper resources indicates that we will pass peak copper production within 30 years is the fiction because the truth is that we have enough copper for at least a century. That there were, there's no end in sight to our co- copper supplies. Good. Um, so yeah, we're nowhere near peak, peak copper. So they're saying that, um, The the issues with copper are the environmental and economic and social costs of mining it. We're not going to run out of copper, so we're going to have to figure out how to mine it in an environmentally friendly way. But there's plenty of copper out there. I don't think... Though Rebecca, I don't agree with that. analysis that the our wi- coming wireless world is going to free us from our need for copper. It's still, no. it's still just a, a very basic, useful metal that I Maybe think. We still
2: have pennies, I guess.
1: Yeah, copper pennies.
0: flashing on our roofs
1: and <laughs> copper plumbing. You know, copper plumbing. Well, they've gone in the way of plastics, but still, yeah, like still yeah. all of these things
2: copper. are easily replaceable by the – But
1: device. but electronics. I mean, you know, even though it's a, still it's a cheap metal, yeah. so when it can be used for stuff, you know, for electronics or whatever. Yeah, but I, I,
2: I don't know. When I think of it, like, I, I know it's used in electronics and we have like, electronics everywhere, but our electronics are getting smaller. And I, I, I'm fairly certain that, like, copper in wiring is, like, the big use of copper. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. Like, that's it, what Demand people, is still that's increasing. What people
2: always steal to resell. Yeah. They steal the... The, the copper wiring. Wire.
1: Think about China. The Demand is, is still going up. Oh, yeah. Global demand yeah. is increasing for copper. That's yeah, just a, a guess. Yeah, no, I'm just saying. Yeah, I just. I, What's important is that I got it right. You did get it right. <laughs> yes.
2: Even if <laughs> I got it wrong. Whatever. Sorry, Bob.
1: Mm. But I'm Would not you rather sorry. be right for the wrong reason or wrong for the right reason? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, Jay. Yeah. It's quote time.
4: <laughs>
3: it's quote time.
0: Some someone wake up, Jay.
3: Quote me, uh, Evan.
0: Who's Roger Ebert? Uh, one of the world's most famous movie critics.
3: Who passed away sure recently. Question. Yeah, he did pass yes. away recently. Very um
0: very sad. And a,
3: very intelligent man was made famous by uh the T V show uh where they did um uh, he Roger Ebert and what was his partner Siskel Siskel, Siskel.
0: Yeah. Siskel and Ebert.
3: Both smart guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think they were both very good at um being movie critics. It's not mm-hmm. that many people who, uh, whose opinions I, I respected as much as theirs when it came to, to movie judgments. But oh, I digress. Yeah, Roger, you hear that, Gene Shallot. Roger Ebert um, was very quotable, and this quote was sent in by a listener named Kristen Ferguson from Pasadena, California. And the quote is, I believe that all clear-minded people should remain two things throughout their lifetime, curious and teachable. Ah. Roger Ebert! Yeah. Nice yell. That is a good quote. Very nice. Mm -hmm.
1: All right. Thanks, Jay. Thank all of you for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Anytime. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. That's HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you.